Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
the church at Thyatira. We have been going through the seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation to whom Jesus directly spoke. And we have been approaching these seven churches as examples of types of churches to instruct us on the type of church we ought to be. God is above everything else. He is holy. That is his chief attribute. Everything else that God does comes through his holiness. As a consequence, God intends for his church to be holy. And that starts early on in the Bible, all the way back in Leviticus 11. Leviticus 11, verse 44, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, because I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. Later in chapter 19, Leviticus 19, the first three verses, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols and make for yourself cast metal gods. I am the Lord your God. Hold on to that. So far what we know is God is defining holiness as not making yourself unclean with the things of this world, and secondarily, not chasing after foreign idols, idols that are the result of men's hands. Leviticus 20 then says, As for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the prostitute with them, I will also set my face against that person, and will cut them off from among his people. You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Peter picks that up in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 is where I'm going to start, 13 to 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The problem with the church at Thyatira, depending on the commentator who you read, they will say that they represent the compromised church or the corrupted church, the church that was called to be holy and yet find themselves chasing after idols and the things of this world, sexual immorality, and those are the things that Jesus calls out against them. 
Let's talk a little bit then about Thyatira as a city, and then we'll talk about the church, because the church, I think, is just so representative of all churches. There is a core within the church that Jesus complements, but there is also this compromising spirit that allows false teaching, that allows sacrifice to idols. And yet Jesus then differentiates between that crowd that has compromised and the portion of the church that has stayed true to him. So Jesus knows. He knows your heart. He knows your mind. He knows whether you are dedicated to him or whether you're just going through the motions or whether you're just attracted to religion for religion's sake. Thyatira. That name has a few different proposed meanings. Originally, it was a Lydian name, and nobody really knows what that word would have meant. In the Greek language, it might mean castle of the goddess from the name Thya. She was the Greek goddess of light. Or it may mean the smell of suffering or the perfume of the sacrifice of labor or even the odor of affliction. However, historically, we know that in the Greek language, Thegatera, if I'm saying that correctly, means daughter. And so historically, what we read is that in 290 BC, King Seleucus I Nicator had a daughter. And since that city was under his jurisdiction, he named the city Daughter. But the ancient name, and this is what's really interesting about the city, we know it as Thyatira. It still exists, by the way. Its name is Akhazar, which means white castle. In the Middle East, it's the place where you go for small hamburgers in the middle of the night. <laughs> okay, fine, Justine, if you were still with me. According to Eusebius, who was writing in the early 300s, Nimrod, who is mentioned in the book of Genesis, who is actually the great-grandson of Noah through Cush, you can read about that in Genesis 10, 8, this Nimrod was reputed to have a wife whose name was Semiramis. Now, why do I bring that up? Because the ancient name of Thyatira was Semiramis. It was a city that was named and dedicated to the goddess Semiramis. Thyatira was located 25 miles southeast of Pergamos, on the road from Pergamos to Sardis, about 27 miles to Sardis. So about halfway, if you're traveling from Pergamos to Sardis, those two are major cities, and on the way you would pass through Thyatira. Thyatira sat right there on the border of Mysia and Ionia. So basically, what it was was just a garrison city. Because it was right there on the border, it was the first line of defense against invading armies who might be coming into that area of Asia Minor. And as a consequence, that city has a long history of being completely destroyed and being rebuilt. Because as the invading armies would come in, that was the first city they would hit, the first line of defense before you got to the capital. 
And so that city was systematically destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. It was considered a small, unimportant city. In fact, every commentator who talks about Thyatira mentions the fact that Pliny the Elder once made reference to, quote, Thyatira and other unimportant cities. So we know that back there in the first century, it was not considered a particularly important city. It's the smallest of the cities that Jesus writes to, and yet it's the longest letter that we find among the seven churches. Now there are two leading industries there in Thyatira. One is the manufacture of instruments like bronze and brass and other metals. And the other is the manufacture and the dyeing of cloth, especially creating the royal color purple. Homer himself speaks of this dyeing of red and purple cloth as being characteristic of the city of Thyatira. And in fact, archaeologists have uncovered several inscriptions that mention the dyers there in the city, but also mention their guilds. And this is very important in understanding the persecution that went on in the city of Thyatira. Maybe the most well-known Thyatiran is a woman who we read about in the book of Acts by the name of Lydia. Acts 16, 12 to 15 says, From there, we, that's Luke and Paul and his whole company, we went to the Roman colony of Philippi, the leading city of that district of Macedonia. We stayed there for several days, and on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate along the river where it was customary to find a place of prayer. And after sitting down, we spoke to the women who were gathered there. Among those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, if you consider me to be a believer in the Lord, stay at my house, and she persuaded us. So she is the first convert on European soil. She lived in Philippi. She's from Thyatira. And she's a dealer in the indigo, in the purple trade. Now, a moment ago, I said to you that it's important to recognize that not only were they manufacturers there in that city, but that they also had basically trade unions. They were known for their trade guilds. Pretty much everybody who manufactured anything belonged to a guild. In fact, there were more guilds in Thyatira than in any other city in the Roman province of Asia. There were wool workers and linen workers. There were makers of outer garments. There were dyers. There were leather workers. There were tanners. There were potters, bakers, slave dealers, and there were bronze smiths. And that was a very big deal, the makers of bronze. Now, the people who made the bronze and the brass, part of how they would sell their product was to try to buff it to a very high sheen so that it would reflect. You could even see your face in it. Hang on to that. Part of 
being in a trade guild required that you also participate in pagan feasts. You can see why Christians would have difficulty being in any of these trade unions. It was taught by many in the early church that no Christian would belong to a trade guild. And of course, that would make the Christians all the poorer because they couldn't manufacture and sell stuff. And the trade guilds had a lock on the manufacture and distribution of products out of Thyatira. It was kind of like Caesar worship. Guild members had to pay homage and worship to whoever their patron deity was. Whoever the patron deity of the guild was, you had to sacrifice to him, but you also then had to sacrifice to Apollo because Apollo was not only over many of the trade guilds, but he was the chief god of the entire city. So the worship of Apollo ran rampant. Apollo, if you don't know anything about him, he's the god of archery, he's the god of music and dance, truth and prophecy, healing and diseases, the sun and light, and poetry, and other things. He was really considered a very, very important god because... He was also the son of Zeus. So he wore the title, the son of God. This is why, as we approach the letter to Thyatira, the very first thing that Jesus points out after saying to the angel, to the messenger of the church in Thyatira, write, the son of God who has eyes like flames of fire. Jesus identifies himself as the son of God because this is a whole city that is worshiping the son of God, Apollo. Jesus points out, I'm the real son of God. And interestingly, that phrase, the son of God, this is the only place in the entire book of Revelation where you see Jesus refer to himself as the son of God. So it's not a mistake. He's pointing out the distinction between himself and between the foreign idol god that the church at Thyatira is being forced to worship or else be completely impoverished because the whole city is given over to Apollo. Now this Apollo is the twin brother of Artemis, who we know as Diana, who of course is the primary god of Ephesus. Apollo was depicted as being a beautiful male. In fact, he was considered the Greek ideal of a man. So he's considered to be the most Greek of all the gods. Thyatira also worshipped Ashtaroth. Now, in a moment, I'm going to talk in some great detail about this Ashtaroth, who goes by a few different names, Ashtaroth, Ashtoreth. Ishtar, and we have to talk about her a little bit because she is so important to Thyatira, but also to her history as Semiramis, and the city is named after Semiramis. Thyatira worshipped Ashtoreth, who the Greeks believed to be a virgin and to be the protector of young maidens. She was also the goddess of childbirth. You've heard me through the years occasionally mention 
Alexander Hislop and his book, The Two Babylons. The only reason I bring that up this morning is because in his book, he makes a very convincing case, connects the dots between Ashtaroth and Semiramis. And it was through her, through the Babylonian Semiramis, that the religion of the mother goddess, child god, really became universal throughout the world. The worship of mother god, child god, got its start in Babylon with Semiramis. Now, why is that important? Well, because we'd like to think that we're so advanced now, we're so grown up spiritually, we're so far beyond those ancient people and their silly religions that nobody today, especially within a church, would fall for the mother goddess cult. Secular history tells us about this Semiramis. She was married, like I said, to Nimrod. Semiramis claimed that her son, Tammuz, who was her first son, actually fulfilled the prophecy of Genesis 3.15, and that made her son a savior, and therefore she was called by the name the mother of God and the queen of heaven. Sound familiar? Because those names and titles are still around today as part of the mother-child cult, which again started in Babylon, and this is, I'm really introducing this whole thing because we're going to see so much of it as we continue through the book of Revelation. We're going to see so many references to Babylon and the religion that grew out of Babylon, the system that came from Babylon. So you have to understand that the mystery religions have their beginning back in Babylon. And the mother-child cult is really the primary worldwide worship of someone other than God. It started in Babylon, as I said. From there, it spread to Phoenicia under the name Ashtaroth and Tammuz. In Egypt, the mother-child cult was known as Isis and Horus. In Greece, it was Aphrodites and Eros. In Rome, it was Venus and Cupid. And in the modern church, it's known as Mary. Supposedly, Tammuz was slain by a wild boar while he was on a hunting trip. That's right, he was bored to death. Okay, just seeing if you're still following me. According to that myth, He was then resurrected 40 days later, so every year the temple virgins would weep and fast for 40 days to memorialize the death and resurrection of Tammuz, and after those 40 days, they broke out into a feast that's known as Ishtar. Does any of this sound familiar? Because again, we like to think that we're so grown up and mature spiritually, and that no church would fall for those things. Starting in Ezekiel chapter 8, I'm going to read verse 13 and 14. Even if you don't know a whole lot about these cults and how they began and how they have continued, what you know for sure is that there were the temple virgins who would go and 
have their 40 days of fasting and weeping for Tammuz, Ezekiel 8 says, God told me, Ezekiel speaking, as God was taking him around Jerusalem and showing him all the horrible things that, the, that Israel was doing in the temple and in their private lives, God said to him, you will see them committing even greater abominations. And then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and I saw women sitting there weeping for Tammuz. So the Bible validates this idea of women weeping over the death of Tammuz. Jeremiah 7, starting at verse 16, says, As for you, this is God speaking to Jeremiah, listen to this language, As for you, do not pray for these people, and do not lift up a cry or a prayer for them, and do not plead with me for them, for I am not listening to you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather the wood, the fathers make the fire, the women need the dough to make sacrificial cakes for the queen of heaven. Who's that? That's Samiramus. That's Ashtaroth. And then they pour out their drink offerings to other gods in order to provoke me to anger. God is not happy about this activity within Israel. I can see why he wouldn't be happy with it in his church. Mm. Jeremiah 44, starting at verse 24, says, Jeremiah said to all the people, including all the women, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah, who are in the land of Egypt. When Israel, when Judah was conquered by the Babylonians, there were some who escaped to Egypt. And there they created a community of like-minded people. Those are the people who God is speaking to here. (coughs) Hear the word of the Lord, all Judah who are in the land of Egypt. This is what the Lord, the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says. As for you and your wives... You have spoken with your mouths, and you have fulfilled it with your hands, saying, We will certainly perform our vows that we have vowed to burn sacrifices to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. Then God gets all sarcastic on them and says, By all means, fulfill your vows. And be sure to perform your vows. And in return, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah that are living in Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall never be invoked again by the mouth of anyone of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, as the Lord lives. Behold, I am watching over you for harm and not for good. And all the people of Judah who are in the land of Egypt will meet their end by the sword or by famine until they are completely gone. Why did I read all that? Because God is really upset about people worshiping the queen of heaven. And her son, Tammuz, which is where the 40 days of weeping began. We just know it in the modern church as Lent. That word Lent comes from lengthen, 
because that's when the days from the short days are becoming longer days as the days are lengthening coming toward the summer then you're going to be able to grow crops again you're going to have food again and therefore you go and worship to the queen of heaven and you do it on the day named after her we still call it by her name Ishtar we just call it Easter by the way the symbols of the Ishtar feast were signs of fertility eggs rabbits do I have to fill in the blanks so that is still going on to this very day. Has anybody ever seen a painting of Mary holding baby Jesus in her arms and she has a symbol of the sun behind her head? Those Madonna paintings are all part of this mother goddess cult that reaches all the way back to Babylon. And so now the Catholic Church has said that Mary is also co-redemptrix. She's the redeemer, just like Jesus is. And she's co-mediatrix. She can mediate between you and God, which only Christ can do. That is the continuation of the mother cult. It's alive and well in the world today. That's all I'm getting at. And here's one that's stunning for you. Okay, if you've heard nothing else I've said, wow, listen closely to this. Go to the website of the Congressional Medal of Honor. I know it's there because I was just there on Friday. At the website of the Congressional Medal of Honor, you can look at each of the different medals of honor depending on the branch of the military. There's an Army and an Air Force and a Navy Medal of Honor, and each of them have a little bit different symbology on them. On the one for the Air Force, you can click on the picture of the Statue of Liberty, and a pop-up comes up describing the Statue of Liberty. And it says, and I quote, the Statue of Liberty is centered in the Air Force design. In addition to standing for liberty, she is derived from the imagery of Queen Semiramis of Babylon, who was famed for her beauty, strength, and wisdom. Samiramis is alive and well and being honored by the government of the United States, and she is enshrined in the Statue of Liberty. Don't tell me we're all grown up. Don't tell me we have advanced spiritually to the point where we're no longer worshiping other gods. It's alive and well and even in the church. And that takes us to the letter to Thyatira. So now turn to Revelation 2.18. We will begin looking with that background, with that understanding of the various gods, Apollo and Semiramis, who are worshipped there in the city of Thyatira, will now have a greater understanding of why Jesus said the things that he said to the church in that city. Revelation 2.18, And to the angel of the church that is in Thyatira, write. What we're about to see is that those who were led astray in Thyatira were led astray by a woman, very much like Semiramis, and they're enticed to worship 
idols rather than God. The same way that Smyrna had faced persecution from what Jesus referred to as the synagogue of Satan, and the way that Pergamum lived in the midst of Satan's throne, now in Thyatira, the church has known what Jesus refers to as the deep things of Satan. Satan wants to persecute the church, wants to invade the church, and wants to destroy the church from the inside. And so Jesus says, I am the son of God. I have already pointed out to you that that is because the city worships Apollo, who is known as the son of God. And so Jesus says, I am the actual, I am the real son of God, and I have eyes like a flame of fire. Before, when we looked at his eyes and the flame of fire, I said it is like he has this piercing gaze where he sees everything, sees through everything, knows everything, and at the end of this letter, he's going to point that out. I search the mind and the hearts. And because he's the one who can see through everything, you're not getting away with anything. He knows who it is you worship. He knows whether you actually worship him or whether you just like religion generally for what you can get out of it. And he sees through every man's mind and every man's intention. He is the son of God. He has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. Why point that out to Thyatira? Because they're in the active manufacture of bronze and brass. That's one of their chief exports. And like I said to you, they work on shining it up to a bright, shiny reflection. The New English Translation notes say this about the word burnished bronze. They say the precise meaning of the term translated polished bronze that appears nowhere else in Greek literature outside the book of Revelation, that meaning is still uncertain. Without question, it is some sort of metal, and I would like to point out again, like what was being created and crafted there in Thyatira. But they say the emphasis of the phrase is on the lustrous quality of the metal. In other words, as good as the tradesmen and craftsmen in Thyatira thought they were, Jesus was better. He had bronze feet that shined and were so lustrous, apparently it was in contrast to the best effort of men. And those feet are ready to stamp the Judgment, the righteous judgment, the winepress of God's wrath. And so those feet of brass are connected with the judgment of God. So his eyes see it all. His sight is pure. Nothing escapes his judgment. And he's the one that's going to dole out that judgment. And then he launches into the commendation for that church. In verse 19, he says, I know your deeds. Now, this is a tremendous compliment that he's about to lay out. And this is why I said earlier, within the church at Thyatira, and indeed in most churches, there are people who Jesus, who sees and who knows, who searches the mind, who searches the heart. He knows the sincere ones. He knows the elect ones. He knows the ones who are faithful. 
and he knows the ones that are in the church just pretending or worshiping other gods or engaged in all kinds of debauchery. He says to the faithful of the church, I know your deeds, and I know your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than the first deeds you did. Remember the church at Ephesus. Jesus complimented them, but then he said, but I have this against you. You've lost your first love. In other words, they were declining as they continued as a church. Jesus says the church at Thyatira that is under the level of persecution that they are under, he says your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance are growing, which is the way that a church ought to be. In fact, these are all words that you really ought to know. You ought to be familiar with them. They're ergon, which is deeds or works, agape, which is sacrificial love, pistis, which is faith, diakonia, the word from which we get deacon, but it means to be in service, in ministry to each other, and hupomone, which we've seen a few times now, which means persevering, but doing it with an attitude of hopefulness, an attitude of looking forward, submitting yourself to persecution, but having that joy that passes understanding. So that all actually exists in Thyatira. They actually have these great deeds and this great agape love for one another and faith in Christ and serving each other, ministering to each other and persevering through all of their persecution. And if the letter stopped right there, we'd have to say, wow, what a great church. I want to be like Thyatira. What a good church that is. And then Jesus lowers the boom. And in verse 20 says, But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and she leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality, pornuo, and they eat things that are sacrificed to idols. So let's go through this phrase by phrase because there's a lot going on here. First of all, I don't believe the woman who was prophesying at the church in Thyatira was necessarily named Jezebel. I think Jesus was calling her Jezebel so that immediately everybody would think back to the Jezebel of the Old Testament and the amount of damage that she did within Israel. But notice that she calls herself a prophetess. God doesn't call her that. But she thinks she's something. She thinks she needs to be listened to. She thinks she's hearing right from God. So she calls herself a prophetess. And apparently people are listening to her because Jesus says you tolerate her. You put up with her. She's in your midst. And she's teaching. Now by the time John is writing this, Paul is already dead. Which means the Pauline epistles already exist. Which means the teaching where Paul says, I will not have a woman to teach or to usurp authority over a man, that already exists. That rule is already extant within the church. And yet, Jesus says, you at Thyatira are putting up with this woman and letting her teach. And worse yet, 
the things she's teaching are resulting in leading my bondservants astray so that they commit these acts of immorality. The word pornography comes right from pornuo. So people are actually practicing unholy things within the church at Thyatira, and they're doing it because they're putting up with this woman who is leading these people astray rather than shutting her down. And Jesus, who sees and knows, says, I see it, and I know it, and I'm aware of it, and I have it against you. Two things. Number one, the rule within the church has already been established. I won't have a woman to teach or to usurp authority over a man. They're breaking that rule. Secondarily, she's teaching things that are contrary to the word of God. And they are not stopping her. They are tolerating it because she seems hyper-spiritual and calls herself a prophetess. And so they say, well, we can't shut down a prophet. Got to listen to her. And then eating things to idols. You know that Paul discusses the question of eating things to idols, but this is very different. What Jesus is describing is that these people are actually doing it consciously. They're aware that this meat is being sacrificed to the idol, and then by participating in it, they're participating in idol worship. They're taking part of that and doing it consciously. They're aware of what they're doing. Paul's argument is about buying meat in the marketplace, which may or may not be sacrificed to an idol. And so Paul says, for conscience sake, don't ask questions. If you're hungry and there's meat for sale, take it, eat it. Don't worry about whether it's sacrificed to an idol because we know that an idol is nothing. So those are two different conversations. If you know that something is being sacrificed to an idol, to Apollo, to Samiramus, and you're right there participating in it, then you're participating in the worship of idols, which thing God hates. So do you see the difference between the two arguments? All right, so let's talk about this Jezebel then. Do you hear the name Baal right in her name? She's the daughter of Ethbaal, which means with Baal. That's her father's name. He was the king of Sidon back in B.C. 940 to 908. And he was, according to what we're going to read out of the Bible, a priest of Ashtart or Ashtaroth. So once again, this mother-child cult had influence in the life of Jezebel, and she carried it into Israel. The same way then, God says, don't let Jezebel carry that into the church. This Ashtaroth was the principal female divinity of the Phoenicians. Sometimes she's called Ishtar by the Assyrians. She's called Astart by the Greeks and the Romans. Anyway, this Jezebel. She married King Ahab of Israel in order to create a trade alliance, really, between Israel and Phoenicia. I'm going to start reading in 1 Kings chapter 16, 
verse 30, here's the way the Bible describes it. Ahab, this king of Israel, the northern tribes, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all those that were before him. So we know he's not a real good guy. We know that God considers him to be a really evil person. And as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he, Ahab, married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians. And he went and he served Baal and he worshipped him. And he erected an altar for Baal at the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made Asherah. Guess who's worshipped in Asherah? Ashtaroth. How obvious is that? And Ahab is building worship places for the mother cult, for the queen of heaven. Ahab also made an Asherah. So Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Let me just synopsize what she did. You can go back and read it in the Bible, but... Jezebel tried to exterminate all the prophets of Yahweh. You can read about that in 1 Kings 18. She also tried to supplant the worship of Yahweh by importing 850 prophets of Baal into Israel. She worked to make that system of Baal worship the supreme religion, and she supported it and enforced it by the power that she had as queen. So the state ran the religion and was driving people away from Yahweh toward Baal. And of course, you know the incident in Naboth's vineyard. You can read about that at 1 Kings 21 because that's the beginning of the downfall of Jezebel. But you can see the kind of influence that she wielded over the king of Israel when she told Ahab, just go take his land. Do whatever you want. You're the king. And then in that same chapter, you can also read about her destruction and her fall and the fulfillment of the prophecy that she was going to be eaten by dogs, which actually happened. Through all that, by the way, that's when God kept to himself 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. This is the time of Elijah, when Elijah was running for fear of Jezebel and saying to God, they've killed all your prophets. and There's nobody but me left. Now she seeks my life. And God corrects him and says, I have 7,000 that I've kept to myself who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's all Jezebel's stuff. In fact, if you were to look at 2 Kings 9, 9.22 to be specific, to give you some idea how bad she was, Jehu was talking to Joram, who was the son of Jezebel, and he said that there was going to be no peace, here's the quote, so long as the whoredoms of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. Okay, you getting a feel for this Jezebel? Getting some sense of how evil she is and how she drew the people of God away to worship foreign gods and foreign idols. Okay, there's this prophetess who is in Thyatira 
who they're putting up with, who is teaching things that are drawing the servants of God away from God to go and worship foreign idols. And just like Jezebel, they're engaging in all kinds of sexual misconduct. And she's the one that's responsible for it. Can you see why God would call her Jezebel? Regardless of what her real name was, God identified her with Jezebel. Have you noticed through the years that very, very few people are naming their daughters Jezebel? <laughs> I mean, it's just not a name people are comfortable with. And that's why. Also then, you get some sense of why throughout the book of Revelation, and I've already mentioned this in passing, the book of Revelation is going to make a lot of references to Babylon and going to call Babylon a harlot. And we're going to see the harlot from Babylon. And that's what was taking root in the church at Thyatira. Can you see why Jesus was so upset about it and so corrective about it? He says, starting in verse 21 of Revelation 2, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. She's not going to change. Behold, the NASB adds a couple of words here. Behold, I will throw her into a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation the actual Greek text just says, I will throw her into a bed. So obviously it's a bed of despair, a bed of dismay. They said a bed of sickness. The contrast is God is saying the people within your church who have listened to her are chasing other gods and therefore committing adultery with her. The place where you commit adultery is in a bed. So God says, I'm going to throw her into a bed that is going to be her condemnation. I'm going to throw her into a bed of sickness. And those people who go along with her aren't going to be able to say, well, she said. They're not going to be able to blame her because those who followed along with her and commit adultery with her, he is going to throw into great tribulation. Thalipsis Megas, this is the first time in the book of Revelation where you see the Thalipsis Megas referred to, Jesus while he was on the planet. Matthew 24, he's already described it. We know the connection with Daniel. We know the connection with Jeremiah. And here it is being affirmed again in the book of Revelation, that there is this time of trouble coming such as never was or ever would be again. And God says that those who play along with Jezebel, those who worship their other gods, he's going to punish her and punish those who commit adultery with her by throwing them into Thalipsis Megas, this great tribulation, which is the time of God's wrath unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. That's all part of that Thalipsis Megas talk. I'm going to kill her offspring with pestilence. And when he does that, when he goes through that work of purifying his church, 
when he finally, since it is his church, since he's in the process of building his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it, when he's actually in the activity of purifying his church, the purpose is for his own glory, for his own honor, and he says, when I do that, when I kill her children, when I cast her into a bed of sickness, when I throw them all into great tribulation, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and searches the hearts, and I will give to every one of them according to their deeds. So he's just announced, I'm the judge. I'm the one that's going to be on the white throne. I'm the one who is going to judge everybody according to their deeds, and the whole church the purified church is going to know that I'm the one who searches the mind, searches the hearts. I know who you are. I know where you are. I know what you're doing. I know what you're thinking. I know what the intention of your heart is. And that's why he introduced himself as the one with the eyes that are a flame of fire. He sees it all. He knows it all. Do me a favor, if you would, Tom. Because there's one more element of this that's really fascinating. Turn to 1 Chronicles 28.9 for just a moment. Would you read something for me, Steve? Jeremiah 11.20. Micah, Jeremiah 17.10. Jeff, you want to read something? Sure. Jeremiah 20, verse 12. In all of those passages... We are told that it is God Almighty, Yahweh himself, who searches the mind and the heart. And now Jesus says, the church is going to know, that's me. I'm the one that searches the mind and the heart. In other words, here again, we see a demonstration of the Trinity. We see the unity between Yahweh and his son. And you see where Christ gets his authority from. He is God Almighty. Tom, if you would, 1 Chronicles 28, 9. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. It is the Lord God. It is Yahweh who searches the mind and knows every plan and every thought. That's something only God Almighty could do. Steve's going to read Jeremiah 11.20. So Jeremiah says there is a plot against him, but says, But O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. It is God who tests the heart and tests the mind. It is Yahweh himself who knows every intention, every thought. All I'm driving at here is this is a quality that is unique to Yahweh. Jeremiah 17.10, I think that's you, Micah. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, I search the mind, I test the heart. Again, in the Old Testament, this is a unique quality 
that Yahweh himself and only he possesses. Jeff's going to read Jeremiah 20, verse 12. Yet, O Lord of hosts, thou who dost see, test the righteous, who seest the mind and the heart, let me see thy vengeance for them, for to thee I have set forth my cause. So do you get a feel for this? In the Old Testament, the prophets declare that it is Yahweh himself and only Yahweh who has the ability to know your thoughts, to know your heart, to know your sincerity, to know your faith, to know your intentions. He's the only one who has the capability of seeing you throughout and knowing everything about you. And yet Jesus picks it up in the book of Revelation and says, I'm the one who searches the mind and the heart. Jesus has just declared himself to be God Almighty. And in that single declaration, he has said who he really is. He's the one who searches your mind, who searches your heart. Then he turns his attention back to the faithful element of the church. Those who, in their poverty living in a city that is constantly under siege, living in a city that's in a, a military garrison, living in a city where Apollo is universally worshipped and where the trade guilds all have their own gods on top of Apollo, where Samiramus has really planted her feet and the mother-child goddess cult is firmly entrenched, Living in that environment, there's this church. Poor, impoverished, persecuted church. And they retain their faithfulness. And they retain their love. And they retain their sense of ministry to each other. Knowing all that, Jesus says to them in verse 24, I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira... Not those that are following that woman Jezebel, but the rest who are there in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them. That phrase, as they call them, implies that what Jesus is saying, they themselves think that they have this special knowledge. They think they are so spiritual that they understand these deep things that nobody else understands when in fact these things really belong to Satan himself and they call them deep things, but they're not deep. The depth of Satan is nothing compared to the depth of God. God himself is going to cast Satan at the end of the book of Revelation into an abyss and set a seal on him. So how much authority does Satan really have? And yet they think they're just so deep. Have you ever met anybody like that? <laughs> Somebody who just thinks they're so deep. I know things you don't know. Jesus mocks it and says, you who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. What astounding grace! God who searches the minds and the hearts knows that in Thyatira there are those who are faithful. There are those who are loving, who are kind, who are continuing in good works, who are persevering. He knows that and he says, it's hard on you, 
look at the city you live in look at what you're surrounded by and your own church is being infiltrated by Satan himself through the teaching of this Jezebel woman and yet you maintain your faith I won't put anything else on you well done you I say to you the rest who are in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching who do who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them I place no other burden on you nevertheless what you have hold fast until I come now I will mention depending on the commentator that you're reading the deep things of Satan in that reference there I think it is Jesus making a bit of a mockery of the deep things of Satan because of the phrase as they call them but that might also mean that the them in that sentence is a reference to those who do not hold the teaching those who are the faithful within the church and they would refer to the teaching of Jezebel as the deep things of Satan in which case they're accurate whichever way you read it you have to know that Jesus has denounced it and that it has no place within the church the church is called to holiness and Christ says I'm not going to put anything else on you but hold fast to what you already have what you're already doing your good works your charity your kindness to each other your perseverance your long suffering keep doing that till I come and boy I think we could apply that to every church of Jesus Christ do the good works and keep growing in them keep increasing I like the fact that Jesus said to the church at Thyatira your last works your most recent works are better than the stuff you started with because they are growing they are increasing and hold on to them keep doing them until Jesus returns I don't have any better advice for any of you than that walk your profession according to what the Bible says not according to what the world says not according to what that woman Jezebel says not according to what the cults and those that worship foreign gods not what they say but according to biblical standards and doctrines walk out your faith which will result in good works ministering to each other loving each other sacrificially persevering in the faith and do so until Jesus comes and then Jesus says he that overcomes and he that keeps my deeds until the end to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter are broken into pieces as I also have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches if that language sounds familiar it's because it's directly drawn from Psalm 2 one of the most often quoted Psalms in the New Testament verses 7 to 9 say I will announce the decree of the Lord he said to me you are my son today I have fathered you ask it of me 
and I will certainly give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession and you will break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Here Jesus says, that's my authority, that's my power, that's my ability, but to those who overcome this world, to those who stand faithful until I come, until the end, they're going to share with me in ruling over the nations, the ethnos of this world, and they're going to destroy the kingdoms of this world and shatter them the way that a potter shatters pottery with an iron rod. Now, I cannot confirm this historically, but I read one commentator who said that there in Thyatira, among the trade workers, those who were making things out of pottery, those who were building things out of clay, they would hire a kid. They would hire a young man whose whole job it was to destroy things that didn't turn out the way the potter meant for them to turn out. That kid would then take them out in back where they would have a potter's field and he would bust them up and he'd use a rod of iron. If that's the case, then when Jesus says that, the people in Thyatira know exactly what he's talking about. Because he says to those who overcome, you're going to shatter the nations along with me. And if you want an example of how that's going to look, go look at a potter. And look at the kid out back who's shattering pottery with a rod of iron. That's what it's going to be like when Christ comes back and breaks up the kingdoms of this world and establishes his kingdom that will last forever. It's a great visual aid. But originally that promise was made to Jesus. He just said he's going to share it with his purified church. That's pretty exciting. Not only do you get a crown of righteousness... Not only do you get a victor's laurel on your head, not only do you get a white stone with your name written on it, but you also get to participate in the hidden manna and then participate with Christ when he returns. We're going to read about it in Revelation 19. When he returns with all his saints to set up his kingdom, they're going to come back and participate with him in the shattering of the kingdoms of this world. That makes it worth it, doesn't it? Hold on and don't listen to the Jezebel voices that are running rampant in the church today. Finally, the reference here to I will give him the morning star. At the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus tells us what the morning star is. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you of these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. I am the bright and morning star. What is a morning star? A morning star is the one that is signaling the coming of the morning, coming of the light. And in a world full of darkness, there's light coming. Christ is coming. He is the bright and morning star. When he appears, we know that all the other stuff that we read about in the Bible, all the things that he's been promised, all the things that he has told us, those things are all going to happen, and enlightenment is going to happen, and the holiness of God is going to break out so that even the bridles of the horses 
and the pottery are all going to be holiness to the Lord. Jesus said, when you pray, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you see the return of Christ, that bright morning star, you know the kingdom's coming and the will of God is going to be accomplished on earth the way it's accomplished in heaven. And Jesus right here promised that to the church that overcomes. Again, worth it! Yes. And that is the church at Thyatira. As Jesus says, those who have ears to hear, Hear what Christ Jesus says to the churches. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.